San Diego City Council has new leadership. I just want to say thank you to my colleagues for expressing your confidence in me to be the next council president. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How an old library can be used for shelter. So many people are seeing these camps and homeless people gathering in the area and they're seeing this vacant building and they say, why not consider a shelter there? The interventions to drive down fentanyl overdoses and giving Godzilla a larger footprint in American pop culture. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. San Diego City Council has a new president after a surprising vote result yesterday afternoon. Yes, I would like to vote yes in favor of Council President-elect Shani LaRivera. Thank you. Uh, Clerk, please call the roll. That passes 8 to 1 with uh, Council President Campbell voting no. With that, Councilmember Sean Elo Rivera, representing District 9, takes over after the incumbent council president, Dr. Jen Campbell, who was unable to get the votes needed for another term in what many consider to be a formality. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen joins us with details. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks. So what happened at yesterday's city council meeting? Well, it started with Councilmember Stephen Whitburn, whose voice you heard just at the beginning there, nominating uh, Council President Campbell for a second year in that position. Pretty shortly thereafter, another council member spoke up and asked whether he could make a substitute motion. Um, Campbell ended up shutting that down. She's, as council president, in charge of the meeting. But it immediately kind of let everyone know that something was up. And so the end result was then a five to four vote in, uh, against keeping Campbell as council president. After that, the meeting got a little confusing. Um, Campbell took two recesses to consult with city attorneys on the rules and just how you know meetings are allowed to run and motions going here and there and everything. There were some awkward moments where Campbell was clearly not happy, uh, and some council members were withholding their votes until it, you know they knew for certain who was going to be the next council president. Uh, ultimately, as you heard, the council voted eight one to elect. Sean Ela Rivera as the council president, and the only no vote came from uh, former council president Jen Campbell. And there are yearly votes to choose the city council president. So why was the result here such a surprise? 
Well, every year since this position of council president was created in 2006, when the city switched to a strong mayor form of government, the the council president has always gotten at least two years in that position. And uh, the election, the, the bigger election is usually in even numbered years right after a new city council has taken office. That, that's when the, the bigger debate is happening, uh, and odd-numbered years are more of a formality where you're just saying, sure, take another year. But the important thing that's different here is that Campbell, Jen Campbell was one of the most controversial choices for council president in city history from the very beginning. Last year, uh, some of our listeners may remember, there was this huge community-based campaign to elect Monica Montgomery Stepp as council president. She's the only black elected official in city government. She's a former civil rights attorney. She's very popular in her district, and her supporters saw her as just a better person to lead the city on many of its important issues, among them racial equity, which was a huge uh, part of the conversation last year, and still is, of course. So uh, Campbell had lost, uh, she she had support from the political establishment and was elected last year in a five to four vote. But the fact that that vote was so narrow and the vote was so contentious really just laid the foundation for ultimately what happened yesterday. And council member Chris Kate seemed to play a crucial role in preventing Dr. Jen Campbell from remaining as council president. Can you explain what went on there? Chris Kate is the only Republican left in elected office in city government. And so last year, he was one of the five who supported Campbell for this position, uh, siding with the more moderate Democrats on the council. On Monday, he sided with the council's four progressives in voting against Campbell uh, having a, a second year in that job. He didn't explain what changed his mind. All we got was a tweet uh, after the vote took place saying congratulations to the new council president. And he said, I appreciate the relationship we've built and look forward to working with you in 2022. So it's possible that Kate and Campbell had some policy disagreement that they're not really talking about in the open, but I think his tweet is a reminder of the fact that building and maintaining relationships is a really important part of politics. And uh, we should also acknowledge Campbell didn't just lose the confidence of one colleague in Chris Kate. She also failed to gain the confidence of all of the colleagues who didn't vote for her last year. So that was really her downfall. And Council President Elo Rivera, whose district includes areas such as City Heights, the college area, down to Southcrest, is a relative newcomer to the council. Tell us more about him. Uh, he's an attorney by trade. Uh, he led a nonprofit that seeks to empower youth before he entered city government. He's had a somewhat unlikely rise in politics, actually. In 2018, he won a seat on the Community College District board. Uh, beating out a former city council member who in that race was seen as the favorite. And then in last year's city council race for District 9, he faced a very well-funded opponent who had support from establishment Democrats and labor unions. But then that candidate ended up having to withdraw from the race after uh, reporting on some campaign finance missteps that he had made. So Sean Il Rivera has had a very fast and some would say surprising rise in local politics, although he's very charismatic. So, uh, you know, if you if you get to know him and speak with him and and watch him in council meetings and how he interacts with his his colleagues, I think, you know, you might find this rise a little less surprising. And here's some of what he had to say soon after his election. We've got a lot to do. Um, and I really do look forward to working with each of you to ensure that every single community in our city gets the services and support that they need. 
And what is Councilmember Elo Rivera's vision for the council, and how might it differ from his predecessors? Well, he's definitely a progressive, certainly more progressive than Jen Campbell. But at the same time, he's also shown willingness to compromise with the more moderate colleagues on the city council. Probably the most notable example is his vote in favor of the city's contract with SDG&E. Uh, his fellow progressives on the council had voted against it, but he supported it and in the process extracted some last-minute concessions that arguably got the city a, a better deal in that in that uh, equation. I, I think one of the fundamental questions in San Diego politics right now is what is the purpose of the city council, especially when the entire city government is run by Democrats, which was not the case up until a, uh, just last year, really. Does the city council just rubber stamp the mayor's agenda, or do they pursue their own policies and create sort of a competition with the mayor? In comparison with Campbell, I think Elo Rivera leans toward the latter in in a sort of a, leading a strong council that pursues its own agenda. And uh, as you heard there, I think he's very interested in equity and making sure that all of this, the areas of the city that have been historically underinvested in get their fair share of resources. So he's, uh, you know, definitely one to watch. And I think we'll be um, following that certainly in the next year. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Jade. San Diego's rainy season is starting. It's a relief for those concerned about California's drought, but a misery for people living on the streets. Some homeless housing advocates say that misery could be relieved by using government buildings like the old downtown library as shelters. It's an idea that's been kicked around for several years, and there are apparently many obstacles. But the proposal has surfaced again just before the December rains. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. And Lisa, welcome. Thanks for having me. Why is the old downtown library building mentioned over and over again as a good site for a homeless shelter? So back in 2013, the city moved its downtown library out of the long-term headquarters that it had on E Street and into a new location on Park Boulevard. Now, this area, even before the library moved, um, had long been home to some homeless camps but over the past eight years, homelessness has become even more visible downtown, especially in the East Village neighborhood that the old library is in. And this library has been vacant now for many years, uh, more than eight years at this point. So many people are seeing these camps and homeless people gathering in the area and they're seeing this vacant building and they say, why not consider a shelter there? Is there any estimate on how many people the old library building might be able to house? Not yet. So the city is in really early stages of considering whether this property that it's looked at before and several other city-owned sites could potentially house shelters. So Mayor Gloria wanted to take a look at this because Mayor Todd Gloria wants to expand the city's shelter capacity. And, you know, I would emphasize that there's a chance that the city could decide not to move forward um, as it's decided not to move forward before and potentially put new shelter beds somewhere else. Yeah, because there are problems that have surfaced with the building itself as it's been evaluated that has stopped the city from pursuing the shelter idea, haven't there? Yes, the city has cited many, many issues over the years, uh, including some issues that have been dismissed. For example, at one point, 
There was a question of could the library floors bear the weight of homeless people in beds, though obviously those floors had had supported thousands of books for many years. That was dismissed. Um, But the latest that I heard last year from former mayor Kevin Faulkner's administration was that, yes, the building still has a lot of issues. Those incited included like plumbing, heating, and cooling system problems. And also back in 2017, when the city was looking at shelter possibilities, a former Faulkner's office spokesman had told me that the city had thought that the building needed about $5 million in upgrades just to make it habitable. Um, And advocates really thought that that was overblown. But the city has managed to convert another old property, Golden Hall, into a shelter, right? Yeah. So for years, Golden Hall, which is an event space in the city hall complex, you know, was a spot that advocates were looking at and saying, you know, could that potentially be a shelter? And and in multiple occasions, the city said, no, that it's not a good option. But in 2019, the city took a big step to make it into what was then a temporary shelter site. But now, fast forward a few years, it is housing hundreds of beds, and it's looking like it's going to be a shelter for a very long time. So I guess never say never. And as you report, there's this curious obstacle regarding the old library. There's a provision in a 19th century deed that's further complicating the future of the property. Tell us about that. Yeah, so famous San Diegan George Marston, Google him, he sold the property to the city in 1899. And there's this deed that he signed back in the day that seems to mandate that this property house a public library and a reading room, which it obviously did for many years. So fast forward more recently, developer Lincoln Property Company had looked like it was the leading candidate to take over the property. They wanted to make it into an office campus. Then they discovered this deed restriction and concluded that it would complicate plans to try to pursue this office project. They had said the experts that they were consulting said that simply incorporating a reading room and even a library museum into the project wouldn't address the issue. And they were told by multiple title companies that they wouldn't be willing to insure the property. So what's the city's position on how binding the Marston Directive is? So the city and the city attorney's office have really said they don't think that the deed restriction is currently restricting the property. Um, Obviously, many folks would note this property did house a library and a reading room for a very long time. Um, But the city says, hey, you know, maybe it will pursue a title action to try to provide that assurance in any way. Okay, so there's a lot of baggage surrounding the building. The idea of turning the old library into a homeless shelter, though, keeps popping up. Where is the latest push coming from? Well, again, homeless advocates have been raising this issue for years um, because the building has just been vacant for so long. More recently, leaders of the Lucky Duck Foundation um, have been urging cities across the county to open winter shelters in government-owned buildings that they say could quickly be converted um, and, and bring people in during the colder months, certainly rainy days. And in the case of the old library, I think significantly as well, the councilman representing the area, Council President Pro Tem Stephen Whitburn, um, who also happens to live just a few blocks away and represents downtown, says that he supports a closer look at the property, which is significant because often other council members will look to the council member in that area to see what they would think about something like this. Could the building be used as a shelter temporarily without making major changes to the building? So the resounding answer in the past was that major work would be needed. Um, We'll have to wait to hear if the Gloria administration would agree. 
And from your reporting, do you think this latest effort will gain support from Mayor Gloria and the City Council? Or will the effort to turn the old library into a homeless shelter fizzle out again? I'd say the jury is still out. Uh, The mayor's office says that Mayor Gloria was just determined to give the old library another look um, as he's looking to try to expand uh, shelter offerings in the city. But again, as we've talked about today, This concept has been proposed, explored, and rejected multiple times. Uh, The city could also find other properties, as it has in the past, that it thinks would be easier to move quickly on um, and put beds in more quickly. And it certainly is looking at other uh, possibilities for shelter. But many downtown residents and advocates have been just growing more and more frustrated by the lack of movement on this property for years. The pressure seems to be building for the city to do something, though that pressure doesn't always mean that something will happen. Um, And that's something that it ultimately becomes may or may not end up being a shelter. Okay, I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halberstadt. And Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Fentanyl is a deadly trifecta. It's cheap, it can be easily disguised as a different drug, and it's 50 times more potent than heroin. And the numbers show the challenge health officials face. Fentanyl overdoses have more than quadrupled in San Diego County since 2018. KPBS's Katie Stiegel has the story. There really is no safety net out here on the streets. Emmy McClarty survived homelessness and addiction, and she wanted her best friend Josh Palmer to be able to say the same. But each push from her was met with an empty promise. He wasn't ready to get clean. Her last words to him were that she'd see him later. There was always going to be a see you later. Always was supposed to be a see you later. And um, I'm not going to see him later. Palmer died of a fentanyl overdose in March on the steps of the Fraternal Order of Eagles, just off the bustling University Avenue in Hillcrest. Data from the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office shows at least 446 people died in 2020 with fentanyl in their system. That's four times higher than in 2018. Nine months into the year, and already more people have died with fentanyl in their systems than last year. By the end of August 2021, at least 534 people have died with fentanyl in their system. Even more people are expected to die by year's end, says Dr. Luke Bergman. He's the director of San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services. It's really hard to say when, you know, the epidemic curve is going to turn. 
Um, we are continuing to see increases. It's very difficult to, to control supply, right? Particularly with fentanyl because it's so strong, it's odorless, it's colorless, it's very easy um, to transport as an illicit narcotic. It's very easy to hide in other substances because of that. So it, it represents a, a challenge. The disheartening truth is these deaths are mostly avoidable because the antidote, naloxone, is easy to access. But misinformation about the drug and stigmas about addiction prevent people from helping someone who's overdosing. So says Dr. Ryan Marino, a Cleveland-based addiction medical specialist. People don't deserve to suffer or die, anything like that, just because, because they use drugs. Um, and so to me, this is just more stigma that, that kind of hurts people with, with substance use disorders and addiction and even people who just casually use drugs um, and prevents them from getting appropriate treatment. Misinformation can also impact the loved ones of those who die of fentanyl overdoses. Diane Hotchkiss lost her husband, Derek, to a $15 hit of fentanyl in 2019. But she says the man she knew was already gone when he died. I realized, though, he was too far gone. His personality was gone. When her husband overdosed, Hotchkiss vividly remembers calling 911, hoping paramedics could help. They were the ones that let me know, like, hey, you have a one-year-old here. Like, if he touches it, he will die instantly. She and Dominic left their home the day Derek died and never returned. Marino said the team did not have the correct information. Any drugs, I mean, near an infant can be problematic, um, but it, it's not something that is going to get into your body unless you are injecting or snorting it. Uh, it. It doesn't just cross through the skin. It isn't just getting into the air. Since a Democratic majority took over the Board of Supervisors, Bergman with the county says they've shifted their treatment methods towards a model to reduce the likelihood of harm for drug users. That can include naloxone, clean tools to inject with, primary care, shelter, and showers. The spirit of it is getting people what they need and what they want, uh, even if they're not uh, in a particular moment able to commit to uh, uh, a trajectory towards abstinence. Those changes came too late for people like Josh Palmer and the Hotchkiss family. Whether they make a dent in the number of overdoses in future years remains to be seen. Joining me is KPBS investigative research assistant Katie Stiegel. And Katie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You outlined the increase in fentanyl-related deaths in San Diego in 2020 and the first part of this year, but you used the phrase that the people died with fentanyl in their systems. So are these deaths actually caused by fentanyl overdoses? So with the way that the data is structured that the county medical examiners gave us, there is a thing called the cause of death string which essentially shows us in order what the most prevalent drug was in the person who died. The actual pure fentanyl death with nothing else in their system only happened about 54 times in the three years. But there's a lot of times where this drug is either mixed with or uh, you'll hear the word cut with something else. Um, so fentanyl was prevalent in, uh, like, say, like the top one, two or three chemicals in the person's system. But I wanted to use that wording specifically 
because there's there's a lot of times where you'll have people using, say, like meth with it or there's alcohol in their system or cocaine or heroin in their system as well. So it's possible people are using fentanyl, but they don't know it because it's disguised in other drugs. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. What are some of the theories as to why fentanyl related deaths increased so dramatically during the pandemic? I heard a lot of different theories while I was reporting on this, actually. There's some that have to do with, say, the border being shut down and the drug supply being impacted. But the one I want to really hone in on is the fact that the pandemic encouraged isolation. And isolation is one of the worst things that you can have with drug use because, say, for example, you're using in an apartment alone by yourself and you overdose there's no one there to help stop that overdose. And I want to speak more about the antidote you mentioned in your report, the substance popularly known as Narcan. How is that administered? There's two ways that there's a, the brand name for it is Narcan, but the technical name for it is Naloxone. And that can be distributed one of two ways. You can either use the no, the nasal spray, which is where you see Narcan the most. There's also um, an injection, like with a needle and a syringe, and you shoot it into their muscle. So how effective is it in bringing people out of overdose? So while it's not 100% effective, there are studies that show that it's at least 93% effective. I think the most mind-boggling aspect of this story is the myth that's grown around fentanyl, that it's dangerous to touch or breathe the air around the substance. Why do people think that? So I actually asked one of the experts um, a similar question when I was talking to him, and he essentially was telling me that we see this pattern within drug history, essentially, where people, if they don't understand the drug, they're extremely afraid of it. That's kind of, that's a normal human reaction, right? If we don't understand something. So there was an expert that I was talking to that used an analogy and he compared it to the HIV and AIDS epidemic. With this AIDS reference that he used, it showed clearly how we as a society tend to stigmatize what we don't understand. And since drug use is already so stigmatized as is, it makes sense to me that the fentanyl would currently be the modern day boogeyman of drug use. There was a controversial video released by the San Diego Sheriff's Department about the contact effects of fentanyl. Can you remind us about that? Yes. So this video essentially was released as a PSA, and it was showing one of their rookie sheriff deputies overdosing what what we believe to be an overdose on fentanyl. He's shaking, and the man's clearly not responsive, and it looks like he's he's struggling to breathe. And the sheriffs put this video out as basically a way to warn about the dangers of fentanyl. However, They didn't actually consult any medical professionals on this, and the story went viral incredibly quickly. Uh, Medical experts across the country were saying that this was inaccurate and it was misinformation. Sheriff's Department eventually admitted that they did not consult any medical professionals on this story, but they never actually took the video down, even though they said they did. The video currently has over 5 million views on YouTube. You know, since this drug, fentanyl, is so prone to causing overdose, do San Diego health officials expect its use to decline as the pandemic eases up in the coming months? Unfortunately, 
it looks right now like fentanyl is not going anywhere. So even though we're kind of in the decline of the pandemic, the county doesn't see how they're going to combat this uphill battle right now. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative research assistant Katie Stiegel. Katie, thank you. Thank you. The pandemic has been particularly hard on renters. There's been a lot of news about the end of the statewide eviction moratorium this fall. But it's not just evictions. Some renters are also facing another challenge, harassment from their landlords. A growing number of California cities are moving to ban landlords from using aggressive practices to try to push out their tenants. Reporter Corey Suzuki tells us about one renter's experience with her landlord and what it cost her. Sometimes Dabia Binocli dreams about Italy. There's a painting on the wall of her tiny kitchen. It shows green trees, red tiled roofs, cobblestone streets. It's a peaceful, how to say that, peaceful river between two, two beautiful buildings, two beautiful sides of buildings. And I think life is less stressful over there because there's a lot of flowers. (laughs) I'm standing with Davia in her kitchen. As we're talking, one of her kids drops a bowl of popcorn, scattering kernels across the floor. Peaceful over there, even though, you know, it's it's hard for some people, like for me right now, but, um, you know, life is never easy anyways. Excuse me, what you doing? Davia and her kids are happy here. They live together in this small apartment in Walnut Creek, a Bay Area suburb. Leah is seven. She likes when they watch movies together. Alina is two. She likes when they go to Trader Joe's. But like a lot of people, Dabia has really struggled to get by during the pandemic. Two years ago, she got divorced. And I trusted him, so he did a lot of bad, bad mistakes and affect his own long term. You know, it's not something you fix in a month. She was a preschool teacher at the time, but the school said she couldn't bring Alina, her baby, to work. She didn't have anyone who could take care of her then, so she started driving for Uber and DoorDash with Alina in the back seat. That was when Dabia's dad stepped in. He lives back in Algeria with Dabia's sister and brother and a lot of her family, and he helped her lease a car so she could work for Uber and DoorDash. He helped a lot of people. I'm not saying that because he's my dad, but he was the best dad in the world. Then COVID hit, and it was even harder to find work. Altogether, with unemployment and her delivery jobs, Dabia says she was making a little over $2,000 a month, and half of that was going to pay her rent. It was a really stressful year juggling all of that. But Dabia did have one really big thing to look forward to, the summer of 2021. That's when she was planning this big surprise trip to visit her parents back home in Algeria. It's a plan of five years. I'm talking about a plan of five years. We've been through a lot before these five years, you know, divorce with their dad and... A lot of struggle, losing jobs during COVID. Davia and her brother had it all planned out. Davia's daughter was going to be on break. Spring was turning to summer and COVID restrictions were easing. Davia was so excited. She couldn't wait to see her mom and dad again. And that's when their new difficult landlord arrived, a local real estate investor named Stephen Pinza. I asked Davia to read one of the letters they got from him. As you might know, there are significant safety items that we need to take care of in your unit while we wish their repairs were not necessary or could be done without you moving out. It is not possible. I also talked to two other tenants who said they got the same letters. The new landlord was ordering them to move out. He said there were significant safety issues with 11 apartments, and those tenants had until July 31st to leave. So here's the bedroom. 
and uh, pretty clean, as you can see, you know. The walls are fine, nothing is falling, there's no ceilings falling. The closet is pretty clean, it's just not a granite. I asked Abia to show me around her apartment. There weren't any safety issues I could see. And then the landlord started doing other things. He refused to take their rent payment for July. He had workers take away the tables and chairs they used to have barbecues in the courtyard. He started doing loud construction work frequently. And he told them anything else they left outside, like toys and bikes, would be thrown away. Leah Simon Weisberg is an attorney with the Tenants Group ACE, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. She says what Dobby and her neighbors are dealing with isn't unusual, even if it does prey on struggling renters and their families. Part of Stephen Pinza's business model is to buy properties with long-term tenants and that may have some minor, minor delayed maintenance, but he tends to just make money by pushing people out. I tried to get in touch with Stephen Pinza. I called and emailed his office and knocked on his door. He hasn't gotten back to me. He cleans them up a bit, you know, meaning like he paints it, does some minor repairs, and then he puts a much higher, um, you know, he charges way more rent. A lot of Dabia's neighbors did end up leaving, but Dabia and a couple other tenants didn't have anywhere to go. They weren't going to leave at the end of July. They couldn't. Instead, they were going to stay and wait for the landlord to take them to court. Walnut Creek doesn't define landlord harassment, but actions like refusing rent payments and intimidation fit the legal definition of harassment in other cities. And Dabia and the other tenants living in her building aren't the only ones dealing with this. Reports of landlords harassing their tenants have spiked during the pandemic, in the Bay Area and in other parts of California. A number of cities have moved to address it. Los Angeles, Oakland, and Richmond have all passed stronger anti-harassment protections meant to deter this kind of behavior. But Dabia had something else at stake, this chance to spend time with her family. They only had a small window when Leah was out of school, but it was getting closer and closer to July 31st, the day they were supposed to move out. And she was really worried about what might happen if they were gone for too long. And when I saw this letter, I was really afraid that if we go, he comes and literally, you know, throw our stuff to the street because he was so harassing, he was so rude that we would expect anything from him. So I, I just went ahead and canceled my trip. I didn't get those tickets. I didn't go. I didn't know what this guy was capable of. A month later, she got a call from her family. Beginning of July, I talked to my family, and uh, here's the, the shock. Both of them get COVID, mom and dad. My dad is 68. My mom is 58 years old. They're 10 years apart, but they, both of them get sick to the point they couldn't breathe. It was really bad at first. But soon, Dabia got some good news. Her mom was doing better. She didn't need oxygen anymore. And her dad was being moved to the hospital. Her family said he was getting better too. In the morning, I woke up at 6 a.m. and put in the pressure cooker. I was so excited. It was July 31st, the day they were supposed to hand in their keys. But Dabia had bigger things to worry about. Today was her daughter's birthday party. So I made this a lot, like enough for 25 people, couscous with chicken and vegetables. I wake up at 6 a.m. and throw everything in the pot. As soon as I finish and I cover it, my daughter woke up, it was like 8.15, and she's like, Mom, get ready. She was excited, her birthday. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's get ready. And um, we were heading to the bathroom. I heard the phone calling. She picked up the phone. It was her sister. That the way she's talking is wrong. And she has the background of crying, like I can hear some cry. And she say, we tried everything. Sorry, sister, we, we're here with you. We love you. And I was quite in shock. I, I don't know. 
don't know what happened after that. Dobby's family had been hiding the truth. Her father wasn't getting better, but they knew she had a lot to worry about already, and they didn't want to add something else. So it was a shock when Dobby's sister called to tell her that their father had died. You know, a lot of people came to my apartment, my neighbors at that time. They're all from my country, three or four of them, and they heard me like, oh, I don't even know where I was. I was just crying. I don't even know. Maybe I was screaming too loud. I don't know, because quite a shock for me. Sitting next to me on a park bench near her building, Dabia squeezes her water bottle in both hands, screws it and unscrews it as she talks. And, uh, and I remember I took my phone and I'm always on, on the end, he could say, kisses for my lovely grandkids. He loves my kids, of course, and kisses for my two princesses, for my two cuties, things, you know, in the end, and his messages in, in French. He always writes to me in French. Davia's landlord didn't force her to cancel the trip. But the stress of balancing multiple jobs, taking care of her kids, and dealing with the harassment, it was too much. So she made the choice not to go. And now, on the wall of her tiny kitchen, there's another picture frame. Inside is a photo of her dad. Still, things are a little more stable right now. The day I stopped by Davia's apartment, she tells me she was finally able to find a job at a preschool that lets her bring Alina along. It is a relief because I can have her with me, can have the baby with me. I really love it. We feel like we know each other for years and we literally just started, you know. The state and county eviction moratoriums expired at the end of September. And Walnut Creek doesn't have any local eviction protections like cities in Alameda County. But Dabia said she's ready for whatever comes next. I am ready. Whatever he wants to take me, he'll go. Whatever path he will work, if he becomes human and, you know, come and talk to us and give us some more time and we'll work it out. We'll leave one day when we can. We have, you know, enough money, which it's already in my plan. I want to move. I want to have a two bedrooms. I want to have big space. I want to have a backyard for my kids. I do want to have all that, but I cannot afford it right now and explain to him. Sure. The last two years have taken a lot from Davia, but she still has her home. And for Leah and Alina, Davia says that's the most important thing. She hopes they'll be able to move out soon, too, to find that bigger place with the backyard, to bring her mom to the U.S. so she can have family around and help with the kids. And for now, she dreams about that river in Italy. For The California Report, I'm Corey Suzuki in Walnut Creek. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Godzilla roared into existence in 1954 and has always been a towering pop culture icon in Japan. But his footprint in the U.S. has not been as large. Chris Mowry is hoping to change that. He's the creative manager for Toho International and is putting his passion for the giant monster to good use by creating products designed to increase his popularity in the U.S. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks to Maori, who used to live in San Diego and write a Godzilla comic for IDW Publishing. Chris, to start with, you work at Toho, but explain what your job is. So my job is to kind of oversee the 
creative, brand, product development, you name it for, for Godzilla, uh, everywhere outside of Japan. Now, you have a long history with Godzilla that predates your job at Toho. Tell us a little bit about kind of your connection to Godzilla and the work you did at IDW. So I worked at IDW, and I think probably like the first week there, I, I asked them about, you know, hey, have you ever thought about doing Godzilla comics? And they didn't think about it, and then they went after it and said, okay, well, what should we do? And I said, well, we have to get rights to the other monsters because no one had ever done that before, Marvel or Dark Horse. And so they did that, and we were the first company to really put out Godzilla comics, but also featuring Mothra and Mechagodzilla and a number of the other characters. So after, I don't know how long of us having the license, they, they finally let me write some things, and I ended up writing this, this longest series in Godzilla comics history. That pretty much had me working with Toho pretty pretty regularly as far as just like emails back and forth and, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? I think a couple years after I wasn't there anymore, they just reached out one day and said, hey, would you be interested in working for us? So it was a very um, easy decision to make. And for you, what is it about Godzilla that you found so appealing? What hooked you for this? I think growing up, I, the first film I saw was Godzilla versus Gigan. I was five years old. And I think it was just, I was so interested in dinosaurs and sharks and whales and all the stuff, um, you know, in monster movies, of course, too. And I think it was just this character had all of that. And just, it was, it was so cool. At the time, you know, we had the Blue Oyster Cult song out and, you know, the, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon was on. Like, it was just, it, it was easy to get attached to the character. Now, Godzilla is 67 years old this year. What makes him newsworthy right now? Because he seems to be getting a little bit of attention. Is it mainly because of his birthday? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that there is, this character has such longevity to it and has been around, like you said, for 67 years. Generations of people have grown up on it. And thanks to the MonsterVerse films and the success of Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, there is this whole new, whole new audience out there for the character. And of course, the, the character's themes have always been pretty topical with environmentalism and sustainability all those kinds of things. So they're, all those topics are still relevant today. Toho and you have recently launched a series of videos on YouTube that are brand new. You're kind of taking advantage of this platform now. What kind of things are people going to be able to find in these new videos? So the new series that we just launched is called Godzilla Chomp. It is a co-hosted official media program, and it is co-hosted by myself and my dog, Peanut. And it's basically kind of like a... Godzilla 101 in a way and it just it gives some insight into what we do at Toho International in LA. One of the first things you'll see when you come into the office in the lobby besides this amazing mural which we will cover in a future episode is this incredible statue. But also giving some very basic facts for people new to the brand. I, I always joke around and say you know it's a show made for my mom you know who, who's known me all my life but really has no idea <laughs> about this character who I've been obsessed with. Um, so we do these these little short three to five minute episodes. And the good thing about it is like, you know, Peanut offers these facts and they're very basic facts, like I said, but we're filling it with a lot of stuff for hardcore fans as well to see like old original one sheets and film reels and things that we, we kind of have like in our storage area. So you've mentioned this storage area up in LA at Toho. So what kind of things are you uncovering and... As a fan of Godzilla, like how does that feel to go back into those vaults? It's it's super cool. I mean, there's stuff in there that is like old 
old press kits from the sixties, old one sheets that have, you know, never been folded. They were used to be folded and mailed out. These are just like, they almost look like press proofs and it's just that they shouldn't exist in that condition. Just things like that. Just, just really, you know, get me excited for it. Just old production samples of like the old NES game, you know, never assembled. And it just, it's crazy to see all these things. Now, as someone who is a fan of Godzilla, working at the job you are at, what kind of things are you kind of like pushing for that are starting to become available now? Because as a fan of Godzilla, you know, here in the U.S., we have not had as much merchandise to enjoy as fans in Japan, where he's an icon. And so now we're starting to get some stuff. So what kind of things are you seeing happen right now and pushing to happen? I think with uh, the the great team that we have, you know, you're seeing a lot more of those licensed goods that are available here, and we're really working with you know really really good partners now to to help bring not just toys out, but you know like apparel and not just a t-shirt, but like a really nicely you know designed you know high end kind of apparel item. Uh, we just I mean we just did hot sauces and coffees and. It's a you know, Godzilla hockey puck now, and you know hockey jerseys and just all kinds of stuff. So. The, the partners we work with are, are a huge part of that. They're really supportive of the brand. And, but also, I just I would like to see us really start hitting a different demographic, too, and, you know, paying more attention to, like, our female fans and not just with, you know, Mothra. But also doing things like, you know, tapping into some of our character history. Like, Hedera, you're a Hedera fan, and Hedera just had a 50th anniversary last year. So you saw a couple timed capsules around that with, you know, Super 7 did a release. Mondo did special releases. So... Really, just trying to take this this almost seven decades of a character and and finding you know whatever we can. You mentioned partners, and you also mentioned uh, companies like Mondo and Super Seven. What's the importance of partnering with companies that really kind of understand fandom? At the very basic level, it makes our job really easy because they know the brand, they know what they want to do, um, they know their audience, their 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 customers as well. I enjoy working with partners like that because they they're coming up with stuff that was never done before. You know, they were collectors as their own, you know, on their own. So they kind of understand what's been done, what's been out in the market and kind of taking that, you know, you know, it'd be really cool to do. Let's do this thing. The Tiki mugs that that Mondo does, for example, you know, just just really cool. And even like a company like Mezco doing a giant like 18 inch fully movable lights and sound, you know, toy. That's just something that I mean, I would love to have as a kid and. Now it's happening. So, and you guys are also doing some really crazy high-end stuff, like the pinball machine. That was a lot of fun to work on. the The team at Stern is is fantastic, and it's it's basically this love letter to Godzilla and especially the Showa era. And it it's kind of made to feel like if you were to somehow just go back in time to like 1978 or so, and in some kind of like pool hall or, or arcade somewhere this is what you would play. Um, it's got a bunch of film clips attached to it and it even has the blue oyster cult song. So it's, it's a very, uh, very seventies focused machine, but I finally got to play it last weekend in San Diego for Comic-Con. It was, it was awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking. Thank you, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Chris Mowry. You can find out more about Toho and Godzilla at Godzilla.com. Yeah,